Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day folks, welcome to the show and welcome to some more extra helpings. We're looking back at episodes four to six and we started out in episode four in Vienna, didn't we Mikey, in 1913? And we've got a few questions asking, was it out of your laboratory of the apocalypse that you talked about? Is that where we got the saying, goodnight Vienna? Oh, and is it? (laughs) No, it's not unfortunately, although at first glance it would appear they are connected. You see, most people associate the phrase Goodnight Vienna with the movie Goodnight Vienna, which yeah, sure enough, Mikey, opens in your 1913 with the lead up to the outbreak of World War One. But that movie, you know, starring Jack Buchanan and an eagle, that movie didn't come out until 1932, even though it was based on an earlier radio operetta of the same name. But <laughs> here's the really interesting bit, Mikey. It wasn't the movie that gives us the phrase either. Oh, well, please don't tell me it's that rather ordinary Ringo Starr album, Goodnight Vienna, instead. <laughs> no, no, Ringo, it's true. He did use the saying as the title for his album. And in fact, John Lennon wrote that song for him, Goodnight Vienna, <laughs> to do a bit of a favour to help boost the record sales. But no, the idea of Goodnight Vienna having the present meaning, you know, that's it, finished, it's all over, that whole usage seems to have come from a small newspaper story in England in the 1960s. You see, in the movie, the idea of Goodnight Vienna is, well, just that, a farewell. You know, the two leads, they're getting separated by World War I. Notes are getting lost. The hero ends up losing everything while the heroine finds fame and fortune only for them to find each other again just in time for a happy ending. But, like I said, nothing to do with the modern phrase Goodnight Vienna. Not the phrase we know and use today. Right. You see, it seems that for that meaning, the meaning that we use, we need to jump to the 1960s and the other ones in uninspiring English city of Coventry. Never been, but do go on. Okay. well, it's April 1965 and the local paper, the Coventry Standard, is running a story about a woman gymnast called Maureen Wallace. Now, Wallace is due to be part of a group of gymnasts travelling to take part in a major performance, but she twists her ankle at the last minute. Okay, don't tell me. This group of gymnasts, the place they're going to perform is Vienna. Vienna, correct. Now, obviously, the film's been a big hit back in the day, you know, still being repeated on TV in England in the 50s and the 60s. So the phrase is common currency. But it's the Coventry newspaper, The Standard, that comes up with a line that for Maureen Wallace, with her ankle twisted and swollen, it's goodnight Vienna for the dark-haired champion. I never knew that. All right, so next up, of course, was my episode on the month of August. And in that episode, I particularly talked about St Augustine and his turning his back on 
alcohol and proposing we should all go teetotal. But <laughs> as one listener pointed out, he was actually pretty lenient compared to other figures in history, Mikey, wasn't he? Yeah, particularly one of history's biggest names, old Romulus. Oh, yeah. Because Romulus, it said, he's supposed to have imposed the death penalty on anyone caught drinking. <laughs> Except, of course, this being ancient Rome... The laws only applied to women, and men were allowed to drink as much as they liked. Uh, see, Romulus, not a good bloke to bring to a party. Now, also, I'm glad you mentioned Roman women, because in that episode, I was talking about one of the most famous women of, of Roman antiquity, Livia, Augustus's wife. Yes. And her supposed reputation for poisoning her rivals. Mm. And a few listeners contacted us, and they asked just what sort of poisons would the ancient Romans have used. Oh, right. Actually, it's not so much a matter of which one they used, but which one she didn't use. <laughs> okay. Okay, so let's start off with, okay, Paulie, what's the best known ancient poison? Oh, it's got to be hemlock. Hemlock from the death of Socrates in 329 BCE. Yes. Actually, one particular species of hemlock. Oh, right. Conium maculatum. Mm. Yeah, that's the one you don't want to touch. It's a, actually, mate, it's, it's a member of the wild carrot family, mm-hmm. like, like fennel and parsnips, but, yeah. Yeah, but not as much fun. <laughs> and it was used by the ancient Greeks not just as a method of execution, but here's the thing. You only got to kill yourself with a hemlock if you're upper class. Oh. If you're a lower class, it was much messier. <laughs> but it had been used since the ancient Egyptian times as a painkiller and like a, a relaxing opiate style of medication. Mm. Come on, you must have done Keats in high school. Sure. Ode to a Nightingale. Yes, Ode to a Nightingale. My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though of hemlock I had drunk. Right. Here's the thing, mate. Even if Livia did use poison, mm. hemlock was just only one of the many vegetable-based poisons that she could have used. Okay. Rome was awash with poison. Okay, you've got henbane, mm. also known as stinking nightshade. <laughs> now, this was a shrub. It goes back as far as the priestesses of the Delphic Oracle. Mm. They would use its mild hallucinogenic effect by breathing in the smoke to give them um, visions, shall we say. Okay. Then you've also got something called thorn apple. Mm-hmm. Also a member of the Nightshade family, also known as Devil's Snare and Devil's Trumpet. Mm. The Romans liked this one for two reasons. Mm. Firstly, it could kill you, but <laughs> if it didn't kill you, you'd have amnesia and forget that someone tried to poison you. Ah. And while we're talking nightshades, we can't leave out the obvious deadly nightshade. Sure. The Romans knew that just three berries of deadly nightshade could poison a child. Right. Why they knew this, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, and this is even more troubling. Pliny talks about this plant as strychnos or tychnos and mentioned that spears were often dipped in it. Like the other nightshades, it was also too taken by priests as a way of giving themselves temporary trances. Oh, right. I suppose the most famous one, this goes through to medieval times, you've heard of Mandrake. Yes. Remember Mandrake the magician? The yes, movie? exactly. Well, nothing to do with him. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay, the symptoms of Mandrake include a dry mouth, a rapid heartbeat, sedation, and eventually death. Right. That being said, the earliest mention of Mandrake is in the Old Testament, oh. where Rachel uses the berries of the plants to conceive a child. Do not, right. do not try this at home. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing. The fact that the roots of this plant resemble a, a, well, a vague human form led to some pretty strange practices when it comes to digging it out of the ground. Okay. The myth was that when the little man-shaped root was pulled from the ground, yeah. it would emit a terrifying scream. What? Yeah, that I've heard could cause madness or even death. So here's the thing you have to do, mate, if you're going after a mandrake root. Uh, okay. <laughs> First, you loosen the soil around the plant. Yeah. Then you attach a rope to it. 
and the other end of the rope, a long rope to your faithful dog. Dog. Then you run away. Hopefully the dog follows you. <laughs> hopefully the dog doesn't quite catch up with you. And hopefully the rope is long enough that you won't hear the mandrake root scream. Oh, as he gets pulled out. Yeah. <laughs> For centuries, it was actually thought that the mandrake would grow under places of execution. Oh. Where the body fluids, yep, not just blood, had seeped into the ground. <laughs> Mate, think of the mandrake as like a really evil truffle. Ugh. Asinite or monkshood. Now, this is best known today as Wolfsbane, or even the Queen of Poisons, and often in Rome it was called Stepmother's Poison. Ah. Extremely poisonous, and even in tiny doses, two milligrams could kill a 68-kilo person. Wow. Now, later, under the name of Wolfsbane, it was said to either trigger or cure being turned into a werewolf. It sort of varied from village to village. Okay. But here's how it gets the name Wolfsbane, because it yeah. was that poisonous. It would be left wrapped in like dead meat as bait for wolves ah. that were harassing a particular village. Gotcha. So there you go, Paulie. That's some of the various poisons that would have been open to Livia if she was so inclined. But of course, mate, we can't talk about Roman poison and poisonings without mentioning the most famous story, which is... Well, it's got to be Agrippina, right? Yeah, Agrippina, who poisons Claudius to make way for her son Nero to become mm. emperor. Look, it's still being argued to this day, but look, here's the thing. Pretty much all of the poisonous mushrooms that the Romans knew of, mm. they take about 10 to 15 hours to kick in. Right. But Claudius, he starts feeling crook before the meal's even over. And, mate, before we leave that episode, you were talking about, you know, old St. Augustus, you know, the teetotaler and being a wowser. Mm. And that got me thinking about, uh, well, one of my favourite pains in the butt. So Thomas Aquinas, the yes. 13th century Dominican philosopher, now he wrote in the Summa Theologica that gluttony and lust are concerned with pleasures of touch in matters of food and sex, mm. which to me sounds like an invite to the dance, but to old Thomas Aquinas was a bad thing. Yes. In fact, he actually wrote a passage about this in, in, in his chapter on fasting, mm -hmm. and it has to do with reducing lust, and I, mate, I can't find a better phrase for it, but um, uh, the overabundance of seminal fluid. There oh. we go. I said it. Okay. okay. So this is from St. Thomas Aquinas from the 13th century. The church forbade those who fast to partake of those food which both afford most pleasure to the palate and besides a very great incentive to lust. Mm. Such are the flesh of animals that take their rest on the earth and of those that breathe the air and its products, such as milk from those that walk on the earth and eggs from birds. For since such animals are more like man in body, they afford greater pleasure as food and greater nourishment to the human body. Mm. So that from their consumption, there results a greater surplus available for seminal matter, which when abundant becomes a great incentive to lust, mm. which basically means to keep yourself chased, uh, vegan and with a bit of fish on the side. All right, so that was episode five and, you know, alcohol and our bid to <laughs> try and get a few more listeners from the temperance movement. Yay! <laughs> but we can't talk about alcohol and let this segment end without mentioning one of the big name, one of the biggest in history, George Washington. Really? Now, as you know, Mike, I've said this a few times in earlier reps, when Washington talked about the rights of man, one of the rights closest to his heart was the right to go out and make stacks of cash. And one of his favourite little earners, it turns out, was the booze business. In fact, in 1797, his distillery produced no less than 11,000 gallons of whiskey over a 12-month period, making him the largest whiskey magnet in the entire United States. That's a lot of grog. <laughs> but that's not all, mate. You see, in fact, it goes back quite a few more years before that, back to 
1755, to be precise, and to the state assembly elections of Virginia. Because it's at this stage that Washington and his mate George William Fairfax, they want to get involved in politics and they want to get elected to the Virginia House of Burgesses. And sure enough, you know, Fairfax, he actually does get in. But Washington, interestingly, doesn't. In fact, he has to bide his time until the 1758 elections. But this time round, he's not leaving anything to chance. He draws up his campaign strategy and he decides the best way to win over the electorate is by bribing them with drink. All right. You see, in Frederick County, where he intended to stand, in that county of Virginia, there are actually only 600 men, and of course I mean men, you know, women were not allowed to vote, only 600 men of enough means to be eligible to cast their vote. So he invites them all to this big shindig with the sole purpose of getting them plastered, drunk enough to promise him their vote. OK, how plastered are we talking, Paulie? <laughs> well, incredibly, we've still got the receipts Whoa. for this monumental booze-up through Washington's own election campaign expenses, which, of course, he was obliged to submit along with his candidacy. So, OK, you ready for this? This is the actual bill from George Washington. One. 13 gallons of wine at £6.15 shillings. Yes, British pounds, of course, back then, not dollars, because we still haven't got the United States. You've then got three pints of brandy at 4 shillings 4D, 13 gallons of beer at 16 shillings 3D, quarts of cider royal, 12 shillings, 30 gallons of strong beer, £1, a barrel of punch, 26 gallons, <laughs> no price. Best Barbados rum, £6, 10 shillings. 10 bowls of punch at £1, 5 shillings. Must have been a slightly different punch to the, what was in the barrel. Yeah. Nine half pints of rum, and this must have been the crap stuff because that was only 5 shillings and 7D. And one more pint of wine at one shilling 60. Now, all in all, Mikey, <laughs> that much booze, that's what I call a piss-up. And did he get in? <laughs> An absolute landslide. History's most famous political career is born, and within 30 years, George himself will be the first ever president of the USA. I'll drink to that. OK, and it's on to the last episode for this Extra Helpings. And of course, in episode six, we're all at sea, weren't we, Mikey? With some pretty messy ships. But it's not just the vessels themselves that we've been asked our questions about on the socials, is it, Mikey? We've also been asked about the humans and the other animal types on board. Yes, but I, look, I have to confess, I was glad to get this question because <laughs> when we were putting that episode together, I was sharing my desk, as always, with my feline research assistant, Sugar bear. Oh, of course. And, and people had asked us about ship's cats. Now, look, if you're Australian, probably the most famous cat you know is uh, as a ship's cat is Matthew Flinders' loyal cat, Trim. Yes. Now, according to legend, Trim was born in 1799 mm. on the HMS Reliance during a voyage between the Cape of Good Hope and Botany Bay. Oh, right. Now, according to the story, the kitten fell overboard but managed to swim back to the ship and climb on board by scaling a rope. Mm. This deed of daring-do immediately made the little cat a favourite of both Flinders and the crew. Yes. He was christened Trim. Now, I always assumed he was christened Trim because he had trimmed the sails, yeah. he had trimmed the cargo. Of course. No, no, it's, it, it's far more literary. He was named after the character from Tristram Shandy by Lawrence Stern, which is a, ah, a popular novel at the time. Yes. Now, here's the thing. Jim would go on to accompany Flinders on the HMS Investigator mm -hmm. when Flinders made the first circumnavigation of Australia in 1802. Mm. One year later, 
Trim survived the wreck of the HMS Porpoise on Wreck Reef. Okay. And Trim was even with Flinders when he was captured by the French and Mauritius on those charges of being a spy. Mm. He even becomes Matthew's prison companion uh, before disappearing under suspicious circumstances. Oh. Yeah, a heartbroken Flinders would maintain till his death that poor old Trim had been catnapped and eaten. <laughs> now, since then, Trim has become part of our popular culture. Right. A, a book by Bryce Courtney, which, which I haven't read, and <laughs> at least two statues, one in England, one in Donington, Lincolnshire, right. Flinders' birthplace. Yeah. And one I've seen, and most Sydney signers love this statue. It was done in 1996 by a guy called John Cornwall. And it gives us the statue of Trim that stands behind Matthew outside the city's Mitchell Library. Ah. But here's the thing. On the plaque, there's part of the epitaph that Flinders had written for his beloved pet. Mm. I'm going to read it to you. It's very cute. To the memory of Trim, the best and most illustrious of his race, the most affectionate of friends, faithful of servants, and best of creatures, he made the tour of the globe and voyaged to Australia, which he circumnavigated and was ever the delight and pleasure of his fellow passengers. <laughs> Not bad for a cat. Not bad for a cat. You know, quite frankly, I look at Sugar Bear and go, you know, you've got to lift your game, mate. Here's something I didn't expect to find. You can't talk about ship's cats without talking about the Vikings. Ah. Now, your old alma mater, Oxford, right? In 2016, scientists from Oxford did some DNA studies on cats mm. that have been dug up in various sites through Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Okay. It showed that there were two waves of migrations for cats. Mm. The first during the Neolithic, some 10,000 years ago, as domesticated cats spread along with agricultural societies as they moved out of the Middle East and the Mediterranean. Okay. But here's the thing, they weren't just following the humans, mate, because they found a 10,000 BCE cat body in Cyprus. A cat, right. a cat can't get to Cyprus unless right. humans are giving it a helping hand. Right, they're taking them. Now, the second wave of migration, well, it happens somewhere between the 8th and 11th century. And it looks like they were spread by ship. Now, in those days, mate, who's doing most of the sailing in Europe? Well, obviously in Mediterranean, I suppose you've got the Venetians. But, you know, everywhere else, it's got to be the Vikings. Precisely. Let's not forget, cats feature in Norse mythology. Freya's chariot was pulled through the sky by, by two cats, mm -hmm. and they're apparently a gift from Thor. Oh. However, this is when it gets interesting. When it comes to Vikings and cats, the evidence seems to indicate that they first appeared in Scandinavia in urban port settlements, not in rural or farming areas like the rest of Europe, mm -hmm. which leads to the theory that cats were brought into Scandinavia on ships. Mm. Yeah, those Viking trade routes down the coast, you know, past France and Spain and into the Mediterranean. Sure, and of course, as we talked about in that other app, there's also those routes going eastwards, weren't there? Through the rivers, into the Black Sea and to Byzantium. Actually, mate, it would seem, according to discoveries in a North German Baltic town, an old Viking port, that these moggies were soon travelling these routes on Viking vessels, fulfilling their time on a roll of catching rodents. What's more... Cat remains in Greenland indicate that the cat arrived around about the same time as Viking settlement. Mm -hmm. And, mate, I think it's no coincidence that the arrival of Felis catus on the North American continent occurs around about 1000 CE. Oh, of course, with the great voyages of Leif Erikson. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there. Lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right. Right.